and welcome to the first episode of my yet uh, unnamed podcast that hopefully in the future will cover um, a variety of topics, but mostly related to ministry and theology, maybe with some news and politics and some pop culture mixed in. Um, the first two episodes or so are going to be a little experimental. They will have begun as um, projects for my my two of my last seminary classes. Um, the first is this one on climate change, and um, the second will be on uh, communicating in the resistance, in times of resistance. Um, this first episode is called If We All Pull Together, and um, it's uh, an examination of, of hope and collaborative eschatology and collective action and uh, the hope that we can save the world. So let's get started. Um, I watched the show The Walking Dead for a little while, for a few seasons, and I... I had to stop watching at some point in there because the strategies that the survivors used to survive the zombie apocalypse just made no sense to me. Now, I was a Marine, uh, so on one level, their survival tactics were just atrocious. Um, their you know, watch systems were terrible, and their security was terrible, and their fighting techniques were terrible. Um, they wasted ammo a lot, so it just didn't seem realistic. I know it's a show about a zombie apocalypse, but if we're going to do it, let's do it. Um, so on that level, it was annoying. But on a whole other level, it just didn't seem like it was propagating the kind of message or the kind of philosophy that I could get behind about really how to make it in the zombie apocalypse or, you know, Thunderdome or whatever you post-apocalyptic scenario um, you're interested in. Um, because the Walking Dead characters were not about cooperation. Uh, small bands would get together and sort of look out for each other, but they were the size of, you know, extended families. Um, but the whole show was about competition for scarce resources. Um, and I know humans have a tendency to react this way when they perceive scarcity, but in a world where, you know, the, the human population is decimated and the 80% or whatever of... Uh, humans just want to eat other humans. Um, it seems like actually there is probably not a scarcity of resources. It just takes a little bit of ingenuity to um, to take advantage of them. And part of that ingenuity, to me, seemed like it had to be making alliances and not being so stingy, so guarded uh, with the resources that one does have. Uh, I think there are probably enough MREs, uh, you know, at uh, Fort Dix to feed every survivor in New Jersey for a little while. And, uh, you know, if you set up a good perimeter and guard against zombies, you could grow enough food to feed people and, and we can start human civilization over. Um, but that's why I had to stop watching The Walking Dead, because uh, they 
they didn't cooperate with each other. It was all about competition. And um, that does not resonate with the way I understand that humans have been successful in the world, in evolution, in history. Um, it has Our success uh, has been about altruism and cooperation at least as much as it has been about competition. So um, I had to stop watching. Um, and thinking about altruism and evolutionary biologi biological theories of altruism um, came to mind as I was thinking about how to mitigate climate change. Um, as we actually do make resources more scarce by um, destroying the environment, uh, we're going to get more competitive if we go with sort of our, our baser nature, our Im more immediate reaction. But that's not going to be how we make anything better. Um, humans and other primates, elephants, um, bees, ants uh, are really successful in so far as they collaborate, in so far as they behave altruistically, uh, in so far as they put the collective um, above the individual. Um, that is what has gotten us, you know, all over the world, the top of the food chain, everything else. Um, we've been successful and, and now we're responsible. Um, and both of those are going to come out of, I think, altruistic and collaborative behaviors. Um, in the readings that we did for my class with Dr. Keller on uh, cosmology, climate, uh, and creation, um, several of our authors pointed out um, not only the overwhelming nature of the climate crisis, but also the necessity for collaborative, communal, cooperative action. Um, in her book, Ocean Country, Liz Cunningham documents the dramatic damage done to our planet as seen and filtered um, through the lens of our oceans. She, um, she chronicles uh, her story of meeting people and talking to people and working with people who are really out there doing good work documenting and, and trying to mitigate the crisis. Um, but she acknowledges that individual action is not going to be enough. Um, in her chapter uh, on the Turks and Caicos, one of the chapters on the Turks and Caicos, chapter four, she says um, she met a guy, John, who was doing work uh, in the islands. And John, talking about climate change, says, there's no silver bullet. Everybody wants a silver bullet, but there's no silver bullet. Mitigating the climate crisis is going to take work. It's going to take thoughtful action. Uh, and there's not just one answer. It's not simple. Um, and it's not simple because of the vast amount and variety of the damage that 
we humans have done to creation. Um, Cunningham says, in the Caribbean, scientists documented an 80% loss of hard coral over the last three decades. The problems are so massive and so in need of international coordination that paralysis is often the reaction. What's needed, she says, a vast collectivity of changes equivalent to the damage we've been inflicting. The possibility of change is in proportion to how many of us are willing to act. Think of slavery several hundred years ago, she says. How ubiquitous was that? End slavery? A 4,000-year-old tradition that was the very fiber of the economy? An elite class's grip on power? It's complicated, but it's possible, and we've seen changes like that happen. Cunningham goes on to say, change came about because many people protested and voted and signed petitions and lobbied decision makers. They acted in courage. They took risks. They spoke out. She quotes uh, activist Tom Hayden, or Hayden, who wrote, change begins in the individual lives of countless people when they no longer accept existing conditions as inevitable. Um, and that's true, that's true in all kinds of ways. Uh, and there, there's all kind of scientific uh, rationale and, and um, sociological rationale and psychological rationale for why we don't accept uh, the current situation as inevitable um, that have to do with our short-sightedness and our tendency to um, weight the present more heavily than we weight the future. Um, but Haydn is right. Um, we, uh, we can't accept existing conditions as inevitable if there's any hope for change. Um, so Cunningham says, some of the most important tasks for ocean conservation would be to convince decision makers to do something about climate change, overfishing, and water quality. Of course, that pressure is often rebuffed with, oh, now that's going to be really complicated, and the economic fallout would be devastating. She says, this is just like a slave owner thinking how complicated it would be to run a plantation without slave labor. Okay, it's complicated, but more complicated than Arctic oil drilling or fracking or fishing boats that drag 55 mile long drift nets at sea? Um, Cunningham also talks about how she was intrigued by um, a sociolo sociologist who works with turtle hunters in the Turks and Caicos. This is also in chapter four of Ocean Country. Um, the sociologist is named Amdeep, and uh, she was intrigued again by his work uh, as a sociologist and not um, an environmentalist. And Cunningham uh, evaluates her fascination by saying, our environmental problems could only be addressed by cultural change, not a top-down change or an us versus them change, but a collective cultural evolution. And I, I think she's right. That's uh, what this project is trying to address. Um, the way we go about bringing about 
collective cultural evolution? How do we talk about it? How do we strategize to meet it? Um, I'm going to tell you about Abby and Eric's article, and then we'll hear from them, uh, from, from Abby, um, and we'll get started into the areas of, of strategy and a little bit of theology as well. So we're going to have fun. Stay tuned. Um, Abby and Eric's piece for Sojourners Magazine uh, targets Christians. Sojo's is a Christian publication. Um, and they're making the case that individual action is not, will not, cannot change our course toward radical climate change. A quote from the article, you as an individual will not be saved from climate destruction, nor will I. We will all be saved together, or else we, all of us, are doomed. Uh, so that's not only saying that individual actions can't, are not enough to change the environment, although we shouldn't discount the value of individual action. Um, they're saying that like in a group project, uh, we all float together or, or we all drown together. Um, either way, there's no individual salvation in a group effort uh, or a group failure. Um, it, everything that happens happens to all of us. Uh, at some point or another, there are people who are more vulnerable, um, but the the inescapable truth is that climate change is an inescapable truth. So um, thinking about uh, our collective vulnerability, um, you know, is one avenue of approach to make sure that we start doing something about it. So let's hear from Abby. I recorded this interview on uh, Tuesday, May 30th at 12.15 in the afternoon. You don't have a car when you're at home, so you right. live in the middle of nowhere. So what was after that? <laughs> so, I, so I come, yeah, so I just come over the hill to where Nathan uh -huh. worked once a week okay. so that I could do errands and, um, like, be in civilization. Um, That's really funny. Which, ain't so funny to, like, refer to, like, the place where stores are as civilization and uh -huh. not, like, where our little, t I mean, in our, there are stores where our town is. There's just yeah. like, like the grocery store is like a thousand square feet instead of like <laughs> Kroger, right? Like, or yeah. Safeway, right? Like it's not, it's not yeah, big. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. My childhood was a little bit like that and I resented it. So I don't ever want to live that way. <laughs> no, but it's so funny because I never thought that I'd be like, oh, I want to live in the middle of nowhere and like have to drive an hour to get anywhere. That's insane. I can't do that. And now I'm like, mm -hmm. no, that's actually what I really love. And nice. I really like that. So I get so much reading done when I'm home. It's oh, sure. Great. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to Florida. I'm driving to Florida tomorrow. Um, and my mom lives not in the middle of nowhere. Like it's right on the way to the beach. It's right across from the ferry. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but there's not really much within a 20-minute drive, and I'm not going to have a car down there because she's got the one car and she'll still be working. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's going to force me to just do homework for two solid days, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. I mean, you know, right. Right. a little mini sabbatical. Um, right. It's, it's nice. Yeah. So yeah. sit out, sit out on the dock. She lives right on the river, so I can like sit out on the dock uh, and read. You know, Parker Palmer or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah, tomorrow I'm working on the website for Green Seminary Initiative, and um, mm-hmm. and I'll be home sitting on our front porch or, like, in mm-hmm. our front yard looking at the ocean all day. Yeah, that's pretty working nice. Working on that website. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be super hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You'll just be staring off into the middle distance, yeah. watching the waves. That's amazing. Um, okay, so um, I wanted to talk to you for this project about your SOJO article because um, my project is on uh, co- collaboration with each other and with God. So your article speaks to some of it. And um, and I also i am going to ask you about God because you're a Presbyterian minister. So uh, I just have a few questions and hopefully we go like between 20 minutes and half an hour. How does that sound? Cool. Yeah, that's okay. great. Um, Perfect. Okay, so could you, first of all, introduce yourself, say who you are and what you do, and maybe a little bit about the article? Yeah, great. Um, so I'm Abby Mohawk, and um, I wear many hats in the world. Uh, right now I'm a Presbyterian minister, um, and I'm my call is technically in San Francisco Presbytery, but I'm um, uh, sent out into the world to be a PhD student at Drew University. And um, I also um, am the moderator for Fossil Free Peace USA, a grassroots initiative in the denomination where I'm ordained um, to work for um, divestment from fossil fuels in our denomination, but also um, lessening our collective um, and individual reliance on fossil fuels. Um, and so the article that we wrote for um, Sojo um, was written by my colleague and friend, Eric Clark, who's the moderator of Presbyterian Peace Fellowship, and, mm-hmm. and me. So we wrote it together. Um, and mm-hmm. it was a second in a series that we're working on together on climate creation, um, creativity, and, and God. And so... Um, so that's why we we wrote the article um, on the the eve of the People's Climate March, mm-hmm. um, talking about why um, individual Christians um, can need to work collectively to care for creation, and that the individual work, um, while it's valuable, it isn't enough. And so um, that's like that's what the, the point of the article. Is. Lovely. Okay. Um, So let's just dive right in. Um, In the article, you guys say, and I quote, the truth is individual action is utterly inadequate for global change. Undoing it or even mitigating it is going to require communal action, end quote. So can you talk more about that? Like what kinds of communal action are you thinking about? What communities are um, forming to, to... Take, undertake these actions, what communities should form to undertake these actions, 
Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah. So first I want to say that that's not a new idea that Eric and I came up with. Um, sure. There's been lots of um, green communities and um, activists around the world who have really said we, that, that this has to be taken up in communities. And, um, and so particularly we were thinking about two things. What does it mean to be community? So that's part of your question, and, and what actions are we thinking about, right? So um, mm-hmm. in terms of community, we're thinking about family, um, scaling up to neighborhoods, to cities, um, and so secular, uh, and then also congregations, um, regional church groups, um, denominations, um, and so thinking about those two kinds of feeling in terms of communities. And then thinking about actions like uh, uh, collective food systems, like co-ops, um, mm-hmm. so changing how we do food systems, um, from CSAs to co-ops to um, changing, like, the laws around how food is um, created and sold. Um, mm-hmm. Thinking about um, collective ans- uh, action around transportation, so um, how we uh, share cars or how we use public transportation or how we um, collectively um, change expectations around um, transportation. And so some of that's about individual behavior, but it's also about the, the changing the expectations around um, transportation is that larger collective thing. Um, mm-hmm. And then um, how we, you know, one of the things that we're also really con- committed to is around divestment from fossil fuels, that um, our collective um, money in an industry um, inherently says um, that we're a part of that community, right? And so, like, so bringing our money out of a, uh, uh, an industry says that we're not going to be a part of that community anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of the things that um, that we're pointing to. We're also thinking about what it means to put one person, um, like one person's voice out in the world um, and in like writing an article or like or uh, writing a book or or telling a story versus having a collective of voices and um, telling a story, which is what, like, a march is, right, to to have the People's Climate March, which had hundreds of thousands of people um, in the streets, is so much more impactful than having just one or two people in the streets or having just a, yeah. a small community in the streets. And so um, uh, that's also about the scaling, right, it's like, one or two people in the streets says something, but having 100,000 people um, or several hundred thousand people or a million people on the streets, that says something to you. Um, it mm-hmm. says something bigger. Totally. Um, can you speak more to, like, I don't know if you have any thoughts about this, um, what kinds of strategies those different communities that you talked about can undertake? So like a local congregation or a denomination, you talked about divestment. So that's clearly one strategy. Can you um, speak more about the, some of the other things you mentioned, like at the different levels of community? Yeah. So let's just talk about church um, communities um, to simplify it. So when I think about 
and I might just only talk about it in the Presbyterian world. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, like an individual Presbyterian can really come at earth care in lots of different ways, right? Um, can recycle, can eat vegetarian, can drive less, um, can, and do, can do a host of things, right? And then in a congregation, um, that a group of congr- like a, a group of people of faith in a congregation can um, decide that they're going to carpool the worship, or that they're going to have their coffee hour be um, fair trade um, with like co- with fair trade coffee and um, organic food. Um, mm-hmm. Um, and they can um, so do those things in going to worship, and then they can collectively write letters um, to their Congress people um, and to their politicians that represent them. Um, they can um, and, and use their voice as a as an institution um, to ask for change. And, and again, this is starting to be like, then there's a group of us that do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, they can, um, so that's one one level. They can also take their money as an institution out of um, their, out of investments in the fossil fuel industry and, and mm-hmm. other industries that um, hurt the environment. Um, okay. And then, Presbyteries and in my denomination is the the regional body of congregations um, mm-hmm. or the collective of congregations and those can scale up again and to say you know whenever we meet as a presbytery we're going to encourage people to carpool we'll use fair trade organic coffee we'll only have vegetarian options um, and those are again some like this really simply scaled um, individual. It's still kind of has the individual impact, but but then like a presbytery can say we're going to ask all of our congregations in this region to take their money out or to show up at a rally or um, to to write letters, and so there's even more people, um, and to, mm-hmm. in in the impact of uh, making policy changes that says whenever um, anybody in this region is in doing work for the Presbyterian, we're going to use the greenest car available to travel. We'll use the most organic um, food or coffee um, and putting it into policy and it, like really changing the systems that um, that the region um, uses. Yeah, the policies that this region that region uses, and then um, and then moving it into the denominational level, right? Like that's when we have much more impact because, you know, I think of our, the national leader of our denomination has higher and more important contacts with people in the political mm-hmm. world and can say to, um, uh, for example, the president of the United States, look, our denomination, mm-hmm. of, of which you claim to be a part of, like, believe this about climate change, these are our policies, these are what congregations and presbyteries uh, are committed to, you know, we want to ask you to to live into your presbyterian identity, um, but also can do things like say, as a, you know, whole denomination, we are not going to be a part of fossil fuel industry, um, and that says something to the industry that says, oh, oh my God, like the denomination, the entire denomination of presbyterians, they don't back mm-hmm. us, and 
uh, that's big, right? Um, that totally. that says something about the morality of the industry if a denomination of Christians um, who profess to believe in certain things, right, don't back an industry. Um, but mm-hmm. also, so that's one thing. And, but also there's millions of people in our denomination who can write letters or who can be in the streets or can create policies but then shift the culture of our um our denomination um, towards something else. And so that's the part of the collective change as well is those policies. Um, again, saying, okay, like we don't have to think about wh- what transportation we're going to take or what we're going to eat or um, what we do together, right? That now it's policy and now it's culture changing. Um, mm-hmm. So we just do the things that are good for creation um, in large groups, and that changes the culture. I like uh, thinking that the church can still be an agent for change. It gives me hope <laughs> as a <Right>. teacher, <laughs> church leader. <laughs> so right. I like to pretend that. that. Yeah, I mean, I like to pretend <laughs> that that's still true, and and I do think that is is still. I think it is still true, right? It's what we see. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, we see that in lots of places, and I think in terms of earth care, it, it still matters what the church says. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's been real. I mean, especially interesting to see um, Pope Francis's take on um, environmental issues from his, you know, vantage uh, as right. as the Supreme Pontiff, right? Like changing the way that Roman Catholics think about climate change um, and their role in it and their responsibility for it. Like that's been really interesting just to watch, you know, and and also participate in. So, um, yeah, that's. Cool to think that we still uh, we still matter, <laughs> right? <laughs> when, right. Even when we don't feel it. Right. Exactly. And you know, I I have kind of a love hate relationship with Laudato Si, right? Because mm-hmm. there's been church leaders talking about climate change for decades, and right. um, and but he has this like great weight in the the world, and you know, I, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's been great yeah. to see people be like, oh, wait, let's talk about it, right? Let's talk about it. And I want to be like, okay, but can can the people who've been talking about it for decades leave this conversation? Oh, no? Okay. Or like <laughs> millennia, right? Yeah, like, that's also can, important, right? Yeah, but I've also, there's there's this really beautiful photo that I just saw recently of, of um, some First Nation people going to Pope Francis and blessing him. And Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and just like that was so powerful to me, right? That I was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Like they're kind of like bringing him in and saying, okay, you're like, you've got it, right? And and like mm-hmm. that, that's so powerful. So we'll see. Yeah, and it um, that an image like that speaks to you know the mm-hmm. voices of different communities that are like coming together, sort of finally. Uh, and I mean, I'm, right. I'm not. I haven't been a part of the the climate conversation for decades. Um, so so maybe I'm a little bit of an outsider. But um, the emerging collaborations and conversations that are happening right. in, in like unexpected ways are, are really beautiful. So right. Thanks for bringing well, that like up. The, yeah, and that's like the larger collaboration, the larger connectivity, the the larger mm-hmm. collective, right? That is necessary when we're starting to talk about climate change. But um, 
like it's all of us. Um, like yeah. in north, south, east, west, like coming from our particular communities and coming to say let's be in collaboration and not in competition and let's figure this out because the consequence of us not doing that is that we're all just gone and dead and destroyed. Yeah. Right. Um, which on my worst days I think might not be a bad thing, but we'll not, we'll not go there. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll leave my, my horrible nihilism for another day. Um, no, but I mean, okay. but I mean, this is the thing that I've been thinking about too, is that like lots of people talk about, well, like maybe it would be better for, for, um, humans to just be out of the world. Right. And, but mm-hmm. that too changes the ecosystem. Like our global ecosystem yeah. has included us. And if we just, pull ourselves out of it, we're still screwing yeah. around with the ecosystem, right? And, that's um, true, yeah. and that's not the right thing either, so. Right. Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful, at least for me, maybe for a wider audience too, but, but at least for me. Thank you. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, let's, so I have, just have a couple more questions. Um, sure. What, part, uh, so we've mostly been talking about human action um, and mm-hmm. how we, we are responsible. We're responsible for, for, you know, the sin of harming our climate and, and changing our climate and harming the planet. Um, and, and obviously there are theological implications of that. But um, just as far as collaboration goes, uh, what would you say that, what part would you say that God plays in our, in our collaborative efforts to mitigate or halt climate change? Um, these kinds of questions always make me think, oh, am I going to answer this as a Reformed Presbyterian pastor? or? Well, I'm going to ask you the Calvinist question specifically in a minute, so answer however you like. Okay. <laughs> Great. But, um, okay. You know, I think God is, um, God invites us to be co-creators with God and, mm-hmm. um, and wants us to live into the, um, the commandments that God's given us and and I think God's aware of, this is where I get super Calvinist on my own, right? It's like God's aware of our shortcomings, right? And, mm-hmm. and, it, and, it, and is thus waiting to, to meet us where we are and help us um, get to where we need to go, right? That, that's mm-hmm. not the work of God's grace, is to get us where we need to go if we will just turn and start the journey. Um, and that God's waiting mm-hmm. for us to do that, Um hoping that we'll, that we'll do that and uh, with the like to live into those commands to love creation and to love each other and to love God and um mm-hmm. you know, I think so God God's work in that is to say you know if if you will just start the process I will be there um and that mm-hmm. that God's heart is breaking in in climate change um and yeah and for our like breaks whenever we sin, and that this kind of global sin is a, is especially heartbreaking. And um, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I I don't think that if we just start the process, God will suddenly like wave a magic wand and the climate change will be gone. I think uh-huh. God's really clear about science and the consequences of our actions, right? Um, uh-huh. But that God will will make a way for us as as we um, as we begin to 
to make this action, to make changes and, and to live in the changes that have been in process. And, you know, I, I think there's something um, supernatural about mm-hmm. um, how when we begin to, to do the work that um, that things fit together the way they they wouldn't if if it was just us. Um, mm-hmm. And I think about how relationships form and in this work, and that those mm-hmm. relationships built on love and and trust and skills. Um, like there's something kind of God given about those, and and that things happen that wouldn't happen if it was just us. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I've seen that in our divestment work in the Presbyterian Church that that continue to say, okay, God's working in this. Um, God's meeting us. Not to say that 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 the work that I'm doing is God's, um, like, God-ordained and, like, I'm doing God's work and so thus I must always be right. Like, there's a certain amount mm-hmm. of humility in it, but... Uh, but to say, like, if I'm trying constantly to discern where God is calling me into this work, that God mm-hmm. will show up and be there, um, and that it will be different than if I just was plowing in, like, human first. And so mm-hmm. that's, I think, that's sort of a reformed answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there any... Do you think there's anything that the reformed tradition can can teach the rest of us that that we don't have? Just and I I don't really ask that as like a, a huge, um, you know, multivalent, implicated question just for my own education because I don't I don't know a ton about how um, sort of Calvinist theologies play out in the modern world. I just, I really only know how like Wesley is not Calvinist. So um, <laughs> is there <laughs> Is there anything that you think the rest of us um, sh- should know about about how reform theology specifically could inform our efforts, or like let's just live into our own traditions and, and work together? What do you think? Um, I think one of the gifts that reformed theology gives um, ecumenical conversations um, mm-hmm. is a sense of human. Uh, humility to say okay. that you know at the heart of after we think about God being sovereign and calling us to love each other and to love God and to love creation that that and and when we understand that God loves us and our our whole selves right but there's a certain mm-hmm. amount of humility in our in our humanness in the world that that we don't exist um, as humans to be the pinnacle of creation, that we exist, Mm -hmm. and this Reformed theology tells us that we exist to love God and to find joy in God and to Mm -hmm. love each other. And um, Mm -hmm. that that, that's a really beautiful and humbling call. Um, And I think other traditions call that, like, into the world, but that's really at the center of who we are as Reformed Christians and we we talk about that in lots of different ways, and some of it's really negative, um, and perhaps mm-hmm. rightly so. But that like the, that human humility, I think, reminds us that that we have to be connected because we can't like 
uh, and this sounds self-deprecating. It's really just saying this is where we are in the world, right? Like we are mm-hmm. meant to be, this is our place. This is our role, and and we're meant to do this work. And so that's, uh, that's who we're going to be. And um, and I really love that humility. Um, I think mm-hmm. it fits really well with the an understanding of the ecology of creation, right, that that mm-hmm. we humans are not everything. We are humans mm-hmm. in this larger ecology, and so we fit into this level of life to be human. Mm-hmm. And when we play that role that we're called to play, um, it's beautiful. And that's how we mm-hmm. best love God and and find joy in God um, is when we play that role. Um, so that's what I think uh, a Reformed theology one of the things that reformed theology can bring to this conversation. Um, I think some of Calvin's really beautiful imagery around mm-hmm. um, uh, around creation being the theater of God's work and later mm-hmm. reformed the- theologians talking about what sin looks like as a disconnection from God. Like Those are really beautiful uh, additions as well. But I think that idea of that the humility of humanity, um, not self-deprecating, but, you know, appropriate humility, um, mm-hmm. I think is a really big gift. Excellent. Yeah, that's lovely. Thank you so much for sharing um, that and for giving your time to my project um, and for everything you're doing. I really um, I, I feel so privileged to know you and, and to hopefully get to work with you more in the future and um I'm grateful for your work in the world. So, thanks. I really feel um, privileged to talk with you about it, and um, I'm really grateful for you. Thanks. Abby for taking the time to chat with me about her article and um, for all the work that she and her colleagues are doing. Uh, It's an inspiration to know her and some of the others as well. So um, Abby started talking about some of the strategies that churches, specifically uh, Christian people and Christian communities, can take to address climate change in their own context. Um, Connolly, in his, uh, in his book, Facing the Planetary, introduces a strategy that I thought was really interesting. So, um, we've been talking about collective action. Connolly's strategy is swarming. And swarming is necessarily collective. Uh, and it's necessary, uh, he acknowledges because the scope of what we're up against is huge, um, almost unimaginable, definitely overwhelming. Um, so uh, Connolly says that one way to address the planetary scope of climate change is to take our cues from the behavior of bees who are searching for a new hive. So in chapter five of Facing the planetary, um, Connolly says, The politics of swarming is composed of multiple constituencies, regions, levels, processes of communication, and modes of action 
each carrying some potential to augment and intensify the others with which it becomes associated. Um, Connolly, his argument is that bees search for a new home in this democratic kind of way where bees that are skilled at finding a, a good new site for a hive will go out, they're scouts, and they'll go out and they'll find a good spot and they'll come back to their existing hive and do a dance, literally, do the, the hive dance, and, uh, and the bees kind of decide which one to swarm to. Um, so it, it's a collective notion of action, um, not, not just, uh, not just strategy, but like, there is no action without the action of the collective, which is really interesting. Um, Connolly brings this analogy to human action uh, by introducing the, the notion of the specific intellectual. So the specific intellectual is a person with a set of skills who uses his or her particularity to contribute to the cause of the group. So the way that a scout bee uses her set of skills to go and find a good hive site, I, as a church leader, might use my sermons to encourage people to take action, um, environmental action. Um, I might uh, make a podcast um, as someone who generally is fairly skilled at public speaking. Um, I, you know, might uh, use my connections with the military uh, to lobby and advocate for greener practices uh, within our military. Um, all of which contribute to an overall cause. Um, so we don't all have to be doing the same things, but the idea of swarming is that we get together to achieve one goal, and every action we take, uh, whether it's a, uh, the same action like a letter-writing campaign or multiple avenues of approach to uh, achieve that goal, um, we use our gifts to the best of, of our abilities um, in order to achieve that goal. Um, and his, his point then is that individual actions taken by a group are collective actions. So, uh, you know, if we're in a congregation or in a denomination, and let's say United Methodists have decided to take on climate change, anything the United Methodists do to work toward climate justice is collective action. Um, and I think there are better and worse ways to go about that. Uh, but working together to achieve our goals doesn't have to look like everyone doing the same thing. And I thought that was really interesting. So uh, we've talked about the sort of the scope of the problem a little, and we've talked about um, at least a couple of strategies 
to uh, to mitigate climate change, or at least to to begin to approach it. Um, but the one of the problems I see when I when I try to talk to people about this is that um, people are too overwhelmed to know where to start. Um, now this is why I really uh, engaged, I think, with Ocean Country, because Liz Cunningham does not shy away from the problems of climate, but she never really loses hope. Uh, there are times when she, you know, may be less hopeful uh, about the future than other times, but um, there is a sense of hopefulness that pervades her book, and that is really helpful to me. Um, as someone who uh, can see the future as bleak sometimes, um, the idea that we we still can change things is really helpful. And I think I said that to Abby as well, talking in a church context. Like, the idea that our actions still matter matters to me. Um, and I think uh, it's important to have hope because if we... If we lose our hope, or if things seem too overwhelming, we drift toward paralysis or nihilism. Um, neither of those is productive. And I wouldn't want to say that a person or a group has to be productive all of the time, um, but there is a, a peril of hopelessness that I think almost necessarily leads to inaction or a uh, kind of pure hedonism um, or, or the kind of pragmatism that Cunningham mentioned, uh, a, a diver that she was with one day, um, the kind of pragmatism that says, well, it's going to be gone soon, so you might as well enjoy it while you can. I'm not sure that's pragmatism uh, the way I would want to define, but... Uh, there are people with that attitude, uh, and it does seem like a kind of hopelessness. Um, so, a couple of really uh, famous and influential theologians have lots of things to say about hope. Um, the one I'm primarily going to talk about with regard to hope is Moltmann, um, who you know, has a, a whole book about it, uh, The Theology of Hope, I hope it's called. Um, and I'm just going to read a couple quotes here. Uh, um, Moltmann categorizes hopelessness as sin um, and hope as uh, the need for or a call to or an impetus toward action. He's talking to Christian believers, people who take um, Christ seriously, and it's a, a stirring kind of condemnation of hopelessness um, that I really took to. He says on page 21, those who hope in Christ can no longer put up with reality as is, 
but begin to suffer under it, to contradict it. And then on page 22, uh, that we do not reconcile ourselves with things as they are, that there is no pleasant harmony between us and reality is due to our unquenchable hope. Now, that's powerful. Um, as people of hope, as people who have hope, uh, part of that hope is wrapped up in action, is wrapped up in a dissatisfaction with the status quo, um, in knowing that the reality we live in is not the reality to come, um, it's not the reality of the kingdom of God, um, and, and having that hope calls us into bringing about the kingdom, the ultimate reality, uh, the, the not yet fully realized um, eschaton. Uh, <laughs> that is the, the fullness of the new creation. Um, so he makes a few more statements. Well, his whole book is about hope, but he makes a few more statements that I love. Um, he says, the sin of unbelief is manifestly grounded in hopelessness. So not only is our hope tied up in a call to action, but our faith is tied up in hope. Um, I mean, I love the interconnectedness of things and this particular, uh, interplay really struck me. Um, Continuing to talk about hopelessness, he says, Humans do not believe themselves capable of what is required of them. Uh, that's edited for gendered language. Uh, and that speaks to the um, paralysis that happens when we, uh, when we don't, when we get overwhelmed when we don't believe we can make a change. Uh, when you're me and you have eight finals to do in a week and you're not sure how it's going to happen, um, it's easier to, to just let things slide. Um, but if we, if we believe in the reality of Christ, if we believe in a God who does work in the world, if we uh, believe it is our responsibility to hope, um, then we, it, it's not a matter of believing that we're capable of what's required of us, it's just a matter of going and doing it, uh, which also resonates with me as a former Marine. Um, so we as Christians have a responsibility not just to be hopeful people and not just to take action based on our dissatisfaction with the status quo. Um, but also, uh, he said, Moltmann says Christian ex eschatology must make the attempt to introduce hope into worldly thinking and thought into the believing hope. So we can't hope, uh, without knowing what it is we're hoping for. We can't be blind about it, but, we also have a responsibility to bring hope into the conversation. Uh, 
a hopeless Christian is is an oxymoron. Um, you know, maybe you're not really living into your faith if you uh, if you have abandoned hope. Um, it's interesting that in in Dante, hell is the place where hope has been abandoned, um, or my junior high school English teacher's classroom that was over his door. <laughs> the same the same quote as uh, is is on the gates to hell, abandon hope, you who enter here. But hell is the absent the place that is absent of hope. Um, but you know, if we if we haven't abandoned it, we're not quite in hell yet. That's really that's kind of encouraging. Um, uh, I I would love to play with that more sometime. Um, so to bring it into, um, a call to action in our current contemporary situation, Moltmann says, Christian hope cannot cling rigidly to the past. and ally itself with the utopia of the status quo. Rather, it is itself summoned and empowered to creative transformation of reality, for it has hope for the whole reality. Finally, the believing hope will itself provide inexhaustible resources for the creative, inventive imagination of love. And he says on page 34 and 35, um, what is promised? is within the bounds of possibility. I've, I don't know if I've ever heard anything more hopeful. Um, so, so in, there are ways in which the need for hope is explained by hope and um, reinforced by hope. Um, the, the idea that um, You, as as you you hope and you take action, which leads to hope that more is possible, which leads to more action, which leads to hope is that more is possible, which leads to more action. Um, you know that's that's a powerful powerful cycle, and, and maybe that's what Moltmann uh, was speaking to in his theology of hope. Um. The last section here, uh, I'm going to talk about God, um, how nothing is possible without God, without God's activity in our lives and in the world, um, which is kind of something I didn't, either didn't believe or didn't fully understand um, before uh Spring semester 2015 um, in systematic theology, Dr. Bosel was out uh, ill, and Dr. Keller subbed in uh, to talk about the eschaton and eschatology and climate, actually. Um, and uh, we read an excerpt of Moltmann, we read an excerpt of Cobb, and there was a section on Cobb. I had not read the reading very thoroughly 
But as is Dr. Keller's habit, she went around the room and had us um, discuss a, a quote that was meaningful to us. And the quote I chose changed my life. So Cobb says uh, on I, page 119 of the edition I have of um, an introduction to process theology, he says, whereas atheists see the power of human beings to shape their own destiny as arising out of their own given being or out of the antecedent nature, process theology sees it as arising out of the persuasive power of God. It is because God exercises power upon us, persuasive power, that a space is opened up for us within which we are free. If there were no God, there would be no freedom and the future would not be open to be shaped by human decision. I'm going to talk a little bit more about Cobb um, through a, a couple more quotes, but this idea that everything we do is because God exercises power upon us, that a space for freedom and action is open, was so transformational to me. Um, I had, I think, and I still do in ways, uh, come to think of myself as a humanist, uh, a Christian humanist, but a humanist. Um, and I thought, you know, we're responsible for great evil, great destruction, but humans are also capable of deep good, um, of sacrifice and beauty and compassion and love. Um, you know, humans are pretty great. Um, but the idea that we need God's grace to do anything, that changed my life. And I was already pursuing a call to ministry had been for years when I read that quote. Um, and it gave me language to explain why I'm a Christian. Um, that nothing is possible without God's grace. Uh, but that a way is also opened up for us through grace and through that persuasive power exercised by God is just phenomenal. It's beautiful. I, I have to read more, more process theology, obviously. Um, Cobb also says, uh, God is not a deus ex machina, uh, or God does not act ex machina to prevent the consequences of destructive, destructive human acts. We are responsible for the consequences of our actions. God, um, you know, if you believe God is sovereign, that's well and good, but God, um, does not intervene to rescue us from the mess that we've created for ourselves, at least not every time. Um, Cobb says, but God acts persuasively upon the wreckage to bring from it whatever good is possible. Um, and that's powerful for me, uh, knowing that even when we've screwed everything up, God is still present and working um, 
that's huge. And, and that gives me hope that change is still possible, going back to that need for hope. Um, Sungap Lee wrote an article uh, that is in the um, Ecospirit edition of the Transdisciplinary Colloquia, um, talking about an, an eschatology for uh, Korean Christians. Um, and he develops some of this uh, process thought for Korean contexts, um, but I found it really helpful. Uh, so in, in, so there's a, a lot in the article, it's a rich article, um, and I'm only going to touch on it right now, but, uh, Lee says, um, that some Korean Christians, and I think many, many Western Christians, believe that salvation is not of the world and history, but from the world and history. And anytime you've heard anyone talk about the rapture, that might be what they're talking about. Um, that, uh, that our salvation does not redeem the world, but redeems us from the world. The world is inevitably fallen, I think, according to this system of belief. And the reward for being a good Christian is to be rescued from it. Um, but that's, you know, not necessarily what, uh, Jesus or <laughs> Paul or the book of Revelation say. Um, but I, 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 I think Lee's analysis, um, fits our Western, uh, version of Christianity as well. And it's utterly unhelpful. Um, because if you've uh, abandoned the world, uh, you know, you probably don't think there's any use in working towards its salvation along with God. So, uh, illustrating this, Lee quotes Dr. Keller um, when she says, To leave the future to God means, in fact, to leave it to the overpowering systematic forces to what the Apostle Paul called the powers and principalities, gods such as free market principles. Um, so we're counting on God to take us away from all of that, but that does nothing to change the powers and principalities or the systematic forces uh, or anything about the free market. So um, we can't do it. We can't leave the world to its fate. Um, that's not a Christian response to our current situation. Um, Lee goes on to say that although um, God is not unilaterally responsible for any happenings in the time to come, uh, he quotes or cites Isabel Carter Hayward, um, when she says God needs human beings to do the work of redemption in this torn apart world. Uh, so we're, we get to be part of redemption um, along with God. As I understand it, that's called collaborative eschatology, and it's the most fun thing I learned about in my whole time at seminary. I've probably preached eight sermons on it since I learned about it. Um, it's the, maybe the centerpiece of my theology now, 
that we get to be a part of God's work in the world, that um, God is not unilaterally responsible for things, that God does need us to, to work and to be a part of, of the coming kingdom, that um, we are the hands and feet and we're responsible and co-creators along with God, uh, as Abby mentioned earlier. Um, that's really exciting. It's very cool. And, and I hope um, if anyone is listening to this, I hope that it gives you all hope as well, um, you know, to, to take on the responsibility of change and co-creation uh, and salvation and redemption. That's magnificent. That is a, that is a mission, you know, um, that's, that's something to be proud of. So, uh, Lee says the vision of the kingdom of God and eschatology and excuse me, an eschatological reality is to be realized through human participation in God's continual aiming and persuasive works of creation. So that's a much more eloquent way of saying what I just said, but it's still very exciting. Uh, um, you know, when I, when I, take the time to remember that I'm a co-creator with God, that I get to help do the work of redemption, uh, I, I get a little bit giddy. Um, and, and I, I hope that comes across and I hope I can continue to communicate it with people who, who believe maybe even a little bit differently, uh, from me. So, uh, this whole project has, um, maybe ranged a little widely, but, um, in summary, climate change is real. It's going to require action on our part. Um, it's going to require collaborative species wide efforts to mitigate, um, the problems that we ourselves have caused. And it's going to, involve some power shifts and some, some humility, um, some acknowledgement that, you know, maybe the people in charge don't have all the answers. Um, it's going to involve remembering who we are and what our responsibilities are. Um, and, uh, and really, really living deeply with the knowledge that um, we are capable of destroying ourselves. Uh, it's not uh, it's not inevitable. It's avoidable. Um, but it's not uncertain. So uh, go with that. Think about that. Um, my next episode will be on uh, forms of communication in times of resistance. I hope um, you'll join me for that. I know this was a little bit long, but I am hoping for a good grade in this class, so I needed to do the work. Um, thanks for being with me. Thanks for uh, joining me on this uh, journey and this project, and I, I hope to, uh, to have you again with me soon. Thank you. Thank you.